House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Now, today we are going to be talking about conspiracy, of course, or have conspiracy involved in what we talk about. And all the way from the UK, we have a guest, and um, her latest report just came out, uh, I believe, yesterday. And it's called Out of the Shadows, and it's Conspiracy Thinking on Immigration. So here we have Sophia Gaston. Thank you for being here. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. Um, so any comments on the weather in the, in the UK? <laughs> I was going to say, you're opening up a dangerous Pandora's box asking someone from England about the weather. I mean, we could go on for hours. Um, and, but all I will say is uh, it's, it's looking a clear evening. It's, of course, uh, now pitch black because it's 4 p.m. in the afternoon, um, and uh, no rain, so uh, we are content. Wow. <laughs> Dry for a day. <laughs> okay. Now, so now we get into your uh, report here. Now, I, sh I, I should say you're, um, you have quite the, um, quite the work done here. So this, on this report, what was, what was your main points in the findings of the report, like what, what did you find find out that um, people should be aware of? So, I mean, this is a research report, and of course, I should um, make clear as well that Joe Joe has also been um, a wonderful research contributor on this project as well. Um, so, it's a research report, but we've also been able, as part of this report, to conduct nationally representative surveys um, in Britain and also in the U.S. and actually also in, in, in uh, the state of Florida. Um, and from looking at those findings across the board, I think rather shockingly, we find that conspiracy thinking on immigration is really now a mainstream position in both Britain and America. Um, and while conservatives seem to be most likely to subscribe to these kinds of theories, Really, we do see large portions, whether either a majority or a large plurality of, of even voters for traditionally left-leaning parties expressing a view that their government is concealing information on, on this very emotive issue. So in the report, we, we look at how this came to be, and I think one of the conclusions from that is really that, of course, while we do have social media platforms and, of course, these kind of populist firebrands uh, from the left and the right really fanning the flames on, on this issue of immigration at the moment. A lot of the groundwork of mistrust has really been laid by the decisions of the traditional parties. So whether they were actively seeking to divide opinion or, or just sort of well-intentioned policies that run amok, um, the center-right and the center-left also have a lot of culpability in having created this culture of mistrust, and I think that's really coming back to bite them now. Yes, so one thing that I find really interesting is not just the right. You know, we normally think that it's people on the right who are like, you know, we don't want anyone coming in here and they have blatant xenophobia, but um, it's a, it's across the board to a lesser extent in the democratic parties and in the, you know, the more left-leaning parties in Europe, but um, there it doesn't seem to be major voices in any of the parties that are saying, you know, we want more immigration, or they're not singing the praises of immigration. Um, and when they do come out in favor of it, they seem to be a little bit, um, like in the U.S., you, it, it's an easy position to take to say, I'm in favor of the dreamers. 
right? But nobody makes wholesale arguments. Is it, is it is that something that that seems to be true in the UK too? Well, I think we have a slightly different um, conversation over here, but it is true that it is difficult to find a um, politician at the moment uh, right across the board, and I think this is true really right throughout Europe as well at the moment. Um, so maybe it's it's more a condition of the West. Um, it's difficult to find a politician at the moment who will come out uh, on a campaigning platform, for example, in an election who's not advocating for some kind of control um, of immigration. And of course, the motivations can be, can be different. You see people like Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders, um, really to the left of the spectrum, of course, sort of challenging the kind of status quo on immigration, uh, the kind of economic model that's underpinned uh, immigration policy as having sort of driven down wages and created a lot of kind of social competition at the lower end of the labor market. Um, so I think, it, it, the, as you say, the motivations behind opposition to immigration at the moment um, are, are varied and multifarious. But I think uh, a lot of this has been driven by the fact that it's very difficult to get away from where public opinion on this issue is at the moment, and it is it is firm and consistent, um, and you know has obviously been growing and accelerating quite significantly over the past uh, decade. So I think that there is a general sense amongst politicians that it's there's a sort of uh, an electoral imperative um, to come out swinging on this. Yeah, so one of the key findings, and this is this is almost the same between the UK and the US, so 58% of Britons and 55% of Americans believe that the government is, quote, hiding the true cost of immigration uh, to taxpayers and society. So that's a really crazy number. Like normally you don't always get people agreeing in majority with anything, because um, these are diverse countries, but to have almost 60% saying we think that the government is hiding the true cost of this from us, I mean, that's that's shocking. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I I have to say I was sort of, I mean, obviously going into this, we've had su such a kind of motive and uh, really dynamic and, and divisive and polarized debate around immigration in Britain for such a long period of time so in a way you're kind of not surprised when you see these results because I'm so used to seeing polling coming back that's very hostile on immigration or there's a lot of anxieties and fears and concerns and certainly I mean I'm a social researcher so in the focus groups I conduct it's obviously on, um, very frequently one of one of the key topics of conversation um, but so I wasn't necessarily surprised, and and that in itself I think is is a little disturbing. But I certainly, when reflecting, coming back and looking at all of these, the data tables, I thought again, gosh, you know, maybe this doesn't surprise us, but it really should shock us because I think that stat at the heart of that is really a a, a collapse, a, a real sense of failure in in this contract that underpins. Uh, the relationship between citizens and their representatives, which is so crucial for our democracy. So I think it is a really disturbing finding. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, I guess the problem there is if you take that a step further and you say, well, you have a majority of people in these two countries that think that the government's lying to them or hiding something purposely. 
um, I think sort of undergirding that is this idea that there are these true costs that that regular people have to pay for, and that you know the concern is about the cost of immigration rather than the benefits of immigration, and that we seem to be arguing about the costs and never the benefits. How can we change the debate so that we're not talking about the costs of immigration, but instead we can switch to talking about the benefits somehow and maybe sort of build trust in that way? What do you think can be done at this point? I think we have to be really careful because certainly the perception of citizens is that uh, politicians were very comfortable talking about the the benefits and the positives of, of immigration, look at this huge boon to our economy, look at uh, you know, all enrichment we're receiving through this living in a multicultural society, um, but that they were much less adept at and, and willing to engage with um, some of the issues around the costs and the challenges of immigration. So I think we have to be very careful that um, you don't just have politicians sort of trying to switch gear and, and only relentlessly talk about the positives. I think we have to be careful that you're not actually going to embed and, and further fracture this relationship with citizens who might then consider that they're even further out of touch. Um, I think that these findings should be a real wake-up call for the traditional parties I think there is a tremendous challenge facing them in trying to regain a sense of authority on this issue and, and to shepherd, as you say, the, the debate back to a more constructive place. Trust is central to this, um, and it could take another generation for us to uh, repair all the trust that's been lost. And I, I oh, shoot. Did we? Oh, my God. We lost her again. No. No, oh. I'm back. I'm oh, back. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Can we? Uh, are you able to? Uh, do I need to do well, the whole thing again? No, no. I, I can spice it if, if, if yeah. you know where you were. Okay. Um, okay. So, uh, winning back trust is going to be absolutely critical, and I think if we consider that it's taken a generation for us to reach this place, there's every indication that uh, we might need another generation to fix it. I think the first step is really to confront their own role in creating this fertile ground for, for these conspiracy theories to flourish. And then I think the second step is, of course, to think about how to embed a much higher level of system and human effectiveness in border control processes because all of these little mistakes, whether you're accidentally deporting lawful citizens who've been living in the country for 40 years or accidentally letting in a convicted criminal who shouldn't have been there, um, whether big or small, every one of these mistakes, and of course very readily, sensationally reported by the media, um, they've contributed to a perception of dysfunction and chaos around the management of immigration. And I think that's made uh, these arguments that we're starting to see from, from some of these populist figures, these firebrands on the left and the right to say, I will restore control you can take back control, um, it's made these narratives seem incredibly appealing. So I think that if the traditional parties don't take these points seriously, they'll find that they have ceded all of the ground on this very emotive issue of immigration to people who really ultimately are not interested in democracy or governance or social cohesion. 
Yeah, so I think one thing that, that strikes me, too, is that not only is there sort of conspiracy thinking undergirding people's um, policy opinions, but there's also large numbers of people who think you can't even discuss this issue, and I think that creates further problems. So one of your findings is that 42% of Britons and 41% of Americans think that politicians, media outlets, and others who have spoken out in opposition to immigration have been treated unfairly. So it's almost as if not only do people have these conspiracy-driven opinions about immigration, but they then it goes a, a step further and gets a little bit meta where they think, you know, there's almost an effort to stop them from sharing their opinions and that they're going to be treated harshly and unfairly if they share what they think. I mean, in some instances, I think that's fine. I mean, we have politicians in the U.S. who say, you know, just downright racist things like, you know, these Mexicans have, have calves shaped like cantaloupes because they're busy running all the drugs back and forth the border. And they get away with it and they get reelected. Um, but I, I, I think, and on the other hand, I think there are reasonable, reasonable concerns and positions that people can have on immigration um, that are more cautious or more um, sort of um, want less immigration. I mean, there's reasonable positions to take. Um, but if people don't think that they can even express them, I mean, that that just causes some of it to fester, wouldn't you think? Absolutely. I think those the two findings, this perception of um, the government concealing the true costs of immigration to taxpayers and society, and this other finding about um, the fact that those who've sort of spoken out um, have been treated unfairly or silenced. I think we need to see those as, as hugely symbiotic. I mean, I think they've been coalescing together and, and really fueled this sense of conspiracy that goes from, I mean, if we think about conspiracy on immigration as a kind of spectrum that starts with a kind of inherent level of skepticism towards the state and then starts to come towards uh, perhaps a position informed by, you know, genuine failings of policy or, or border mismanagement or whatever, to the point where you start to actually move into a territory that we would have traditionally, I, I suppose, associated with conspiracy thinking, starting to link these things together, this idea of a kind of deep state um, that perhaps politicians are actively deliberately acting against citizens' interests and wishes um, to a point where of conspiracy thinking on the spectrum where it's starting to become dangerous in terms of it takes over your worldview and there's a sense of kind of heightened threat and urgency which we know can, can play a role in kind of radicalization and, and even acts of extremism and violence. So I think the, these two findings together actually makes the landscape even more pernicious and, and shocking, actually. Um, I think what's interesting is that um, this point around this sort of silencing, conspiracy of silence, um, this taps into really these kind of broader discussions that we're having you know, very actively in Britain and, and the U.S., of course, around political correctness. And I think a lot of people would probably share these views on, uh, share that particular view on issues 
outside of immigration. Immigration is just the one that feels most emotive because there is a sort of perceived existential element. Uh, certainly that's um, if you delve into any of these conspiracy theory websites on immigration, they are positioning this as a kind of clash of civilizations and, and, and there's a very strong threat level there. Um, but I do think that a lot of people hold these kind of low-level um, uh, concerns about political correctness. Um, certainly in my focus groups, that's something that comes up on a, on a wide range of issues. So I think what's very interesting about all, all of these findings is that you start with um, a relatively low-level sort of, um, you know, com commonplace sense that something's a bit awry, perhaps a bit of just natural inherent skepticism, moving towards mistrust. But what we're seeing over, over recent years is the kind of activation of this low-level skepticism and mistrust. And this is something that's becoming much more uh, widespread, heightened, emotive, and, and potentially dangerous. And that's where I think we need to be really careful about this. This is where we talk about mainstreaming. This is where we talk about the needle shifting. There's something going on in our politics and our media and on social media at the moment that is encouraging people to go from skeptics to be mistrusters and to go from being mistrusters to being conspiracy theorists. Yeah, I think there's a lot more to, to do here because I, on the one hand, the report focuses on sort of these uh, opinions that are sort of like midway, you know, there's somewhere between skepticism and just full out, you know, uh, conspiracy driven attitudes. I mean, but I, I think what some surveys show, like there was a survey in France last year that asked about the white replacement theory is the people and replace them with cheaper brown workers and 50% said yes. I mean, that's astounding that, you know, so, I wouldn't be shocked if that started happening in the U.S. because, you know, we have elites who are pushing these ideas. I mean, Trump being, you know, um, the most prominent of them, but the idea that there are these mass caravans coming to get us and these are all evil people trying to take away our culture and um, make make the country more diverse. So you had another finding, and that was that, that, that both people in the U.S. and Britain think that the governments are purposely trying to force diversity into the countries. I mean, that, that you know, you have 50% of Britons thinking that and 40% of Americans. And that, you know, that could be on the one hand, you know, one way to view that is, you know, the government's allowing people from different parts of the world, and that's a good thing. On the other hand, if people are concerned about it, um, a lot of that comes down to a rejection of diversity and this wanting to predict wanting to protect certain parts of our culture from other people coming in. I think for me that finding, and I mean it is incredibly disturbing and shocking, um, and I think if I if I was sitting in, in, in Westminster on the Capitol right now and, and uh, reading that, I would be uh, really chilled to my core. I think for me that reflects the natural conclusion that people have made in the fact that public opinion on immigration has been becoming increasingly more hostile for successive years over quite some period of time, and yet people perceive that 
little has been done. And in fact, of course, in Britain, as immigration concerns rose, so did immigration levels. And you can see that as a, one as a symptom and one of the cause or, or two completely unrelated. But um, obviously people were very concerned and they saw very little action from governments. So that is the sort of landscape that lends itself to searching for other possible alternative theories. And these can be dangerous. I mean, I think for people to sort of just look with exasperation at leaders and say, we've been telling you for 10 years that this is the number one concern that we have. We're not happy. We're not comfortable with this change. And nothing is being done. In fact, the numbers are going up. I think it, we, while we don't necessarily empathize, I think we can say that it is understandable that some people's minds then went, have gone to a place which says, well, maybe there is some other kind of logic behind this, some rationale that we are not privy to. And I think this shows that people have concluded that there was some other impetus for governments to, uh, I suppose, undergo a process of demographic transition. Mm. I, I, I was going to say... I don't know about in the UK, but in the US, there is a real concern about uh, reverse racism. There's a lot of white people that feel like um, they're losing control. Now, I don't know if you have that in the UK. Well, I think certainly um, America is, is it's a slightly different climate because you have a, the sort of nation of immigrants. Uh, narrative, which is, has obviously been very strong in, in, in American sort of folklore, I think, and, and psychology, whereas England's always been sort of the island nation. And I think that does affect the way in which people perceive these. Uh, the proportion of, um, of the British population that, that is white British, certainly as of the last census, was, was still around 80%. So I think the sense of a kind of existential threat to the white population is probably less um, acute than in the United States, which, as we all know and have seen these, um, these headlines that have, of course, stoked many sensationalized um, stories online around the um, predicted uh, shift towards a, which is a minority majority population in the United States. I think we're still a few steps away from that in Britain, but certainly our discussions have been very much focused on the border. I think the sense of control is incredibly important, and that's a kind of existential feeling. I think that so uh, to conclude on that point, I would say that Brits are more concerned about a sense of who's coming and going rather than the changes that are taking place within the society. Now, what's interesting in the UK is a lot of the immigration debate isn't about race per se. I mean, you have, a, you have um, concerns about people coming in from the Middle East over there, um, but a lot of it's within the EU. So there was concerns about Polish immigration and now Romanian immigration. Um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong there. And then, then in the U.S., I think a lot of the media coverage focuses on immigration from Mexico, even though I think immigration from South Asia is actually eclipsing that. Um, so it's sort of strange where there's a, uh, the perception is Mexicans when, in fact, 
it's really not all Mexicans. And, and a lot of the illegal immigration isn't even people coming across the border. It's actually people just overstaying visas. So, I mean, the debate in Britain sort of has two elements, and, and there's the sort of EU element and the non-EU element. And the EU element really has been around, um, well, there's been two aspects that I think have probably been the most emotive aspects of them, uh, of the debate. Uh, the first is this idea of, of um Eastern European workers undercutting local wages and it is true that research has indicated that it has caused some level of um, wage depreciation at the lower end of the labor market absolutely and it is also true that um, there was a very very large scale level of migration in, in quite a short space of time and that uh, there was a relatively concentrated settlement of of those arrivals so, so it did definitely change the face of, of some communities. So um, that is absolutely true. Um, the other concerns are, of course, around crime and so on, and, and there's been a lot of sensationalized reporting about uh, criminality, particularly from um, some of the more recent member states that have joined the EU, particularly Romania and Bulgaria. So there have been a lot of kind of very emotional public um, cases that have received a lot of attention in the tabloids and that sort of whipped up a lot of emotions there. Um, the sense of not having a feeling of control um, because there was this sort of inevitability with freedom of movement, I, I think that sort of psychologically disturbed people in Britain. Um, as I said earlier, I think control is a very critical aspect of, of um, of the country psychology. The other debate is, of course, around integration more so than immigration. And that's really around a kind of, it's less racialized, it's more a um, civic conception of, of um, integration and, and assimilation, which really is around culture and values and traditions. And I think that this, it is absolutely true that um, politicians have not been very adept at weighing in on many of these issues, and, and so they've sort of tended to sidestep them all. I actually conducted another survey earlier in the year where I was frantically trying to find consensus positions <laughs> across the British population. As you know, our societies are becoming considerably more divided, and one area around which there was a common consensus right across the board of the adult population was that successive British governments had not done enough to promote and uphold traditional British values and, and, and culture. And I think that that is really interesting that that is a consensus position. So I think that's an important sort of background to where we are with the debate on immigration here. But I think it's absolutely distinct from the debate in America. And one thing that we do find in the, uh, these, these comparative surveys is that the Brits are a little bit more conspiratorial, actually, um, than the Americans on, on immigration, certainly at the moment. And I think that reflects just how deep-seated and, and, and how long the trajectory of this public conversation about immigration has been. Well, when I hear conspiratorial, I'm wondering what exactly is the conspiracy beyond 
um, the, hiding the true cost. So, so some of it is is you know one issue when you go and you ask people like this is is that if you say if you get too explicit, sometimes you won't get honest answers. But if you look under the hood a little bit and you ask questions. Are they not allowing people in the opposition to speak? Um, you can want, you know, that's where you get to, to sort of these true, you know, more true opinions that sort of guide everything else. That you start to find this mistrust and distrust that can, um, I guess, really, really damage, you know, any further dialogue. Yeah, I think when we were writing this paper, I think, you know, we were very aware that some people would take umbrage with the notion that they're part of some kind of conspiratorial underworld. I mean, you know, conspiracy, when we think of um, conspiracy theories, we've always sort of thought about something inherent to the fringes of our societies. And I think a lot of people see it as a really pejorative term. And and so there there are difficult questions that we had to ask ourselves when we were writing this paper. I mean, what if there is some kind of truth to the genesis of the theory, even if it begins to take on other qualities and stretches further from reality? And I think to some degree we need to accept that we are in new territory here because these kinds of opinions are starting to rapidly uh, become more mainstream and legitimized in our in our ordinary political discourse in our media and of course social media is is so powerful in allowing a sense of consensus to build um within communities and you know giving a sort of there there's a lot of uh, grist to the mill um through the internationalization of some of these theories i mean something that i found sort of poking around all of these conspiracy websites is there are plenty of american immigration conspiracy websites that are absolutely obsessed with what's going on in Germany in the migration crisis and they're obsessed with what's going on in Sweden and you have a lot of Facebook groups um, anti-immigration conspiracy Facebook groups that are starting in Poland and you know they're spreading out messages that are going to the US so I think we have to accept that the landscape is shifting and um, you know I think even that, that said if the conditions for kind of fostering and founding the flames of, of these theories accelerate, and even if they become more widely adopted, I think, and, and Joe can, <laughs> can weigh in on this, of course, but I think the definition of a conspiracy, in, insofar as we see this as something that imagines, for example, a kind of state-sponsored effort to conceal something, I, I don't think the definition itself changes. So maybe it's our environment for receptiveness changes, but not the nature of the conspiracies themselves. Yeah, and sometimes take, people take this too far and they, they really construct, you know, a much more narrative, a much more extreme narrative in their thinking. Like, you know, I think it was just two months ago that the guy went to the uh, synagogue and killed a bunch of people um, because he believed that George Soros and the New World Order or something like that were funding the caravan to come in and get white people. Um, so... You know, you sort of start with this middle ground. I think the government's hiding and concealing things from us. And then at some point, it it can, not necessarily, but it can morph into, you know, there's a concerted effort to get us and we need to fight fire with fire. And then it goes from, you know, we have 
mass attitudes about immigration that are sort of anti-immigration and driven by some some conspiracy thinking to we have lone wolves who want to take action. Um, and we're sort of getting to that point now. Um, and, and I hope it doesn't continue. Yes, I think, I mean, just two ways in which I think conspiracy theories about immigration are, are potentially extremely dangerous um, and, and that should frame our, our reading of these findings is, you know, I think firstly that these concerns um, and these conspiracy theories are often linked to other concerns about kind of demographic change more generally, and we spoke about this a little bit earlier, but I think this can then flow into anxieties about the changing nature of the electorate, and then that in turn can facilitate a kind of mistrust in the electoral system itself, um, and, and I think there, there is a really problematic element um, to that from a democratic perspective. Um, and certainly we see this in quite a lot of the rhetoric. I mean, it's not so much in Britain, but certainly around um, your elections over in the U.S., you start to get these, you know, highly kind of politicized um, conspiracy theories about who's voting and when and where. Um, and I think secondly, of course, as also as Joe alluded to there, um, conspiracy theories really can can encourage a kind of level of polarization and, and animosity and, and a perception of a threat and defensiveness that can be really dangerously exclusionary and divisive and I think can also, as we've seen, um, underpin many acts of violence. I mean, a lot, even outside of that, um, that Pittsburgh shooting, of course, there's, um, you know, you're hard-pressed to find a, a kind of a, an example of domestic terrorism at the moment. Um, that has not been underpinned in some way by conspiracy thinking. So, so what's <clears throat> what's the answer when a lot of these conspiracy thinking people get their information from just social media? Yes, that's absolutely true, um, and. I think it is absolutely true that people are just in general receiving a lot more of their information through social media. But I do always like to caution on that point to say that the majority of the information people are still consuming online is actually from traditional media sources. Of course, it, it can be taken out of context. It's just an article that's being shared. It might be coming through Facebook. It might be just something you find in a Google search result or whatever, you're not sitting there reading a newspaper where you might get all of the story. Um, but I think there is a lot of responsibility for journalists as well to consider their own role in creating an environment. I mean, certainly if we look back historically, as we make clear in the paper, I think traditional parties and traditional media have absolutely been complicit in laying the stage uh, for what we're seeing now. And I think there is a huge urgency for, for both of them to start to think about the language that they're using, the information that they're providing. And I think on, at the end of the day, if both traditional media and, and traditional parties and, and the traditional parties of government are trying to err on a side of transparency, I think that will be a good thing. Because at the moment, what we've seen is any kind of lapse in transparency from, from the two, and certainly this was um, famously the case around the um, horrific Cologne uh, New Year's Eve attacks in 2015. Whenever there is an, an instinct to conceal or hide or withdraw information, an entire cottage industry 
of alternative information is springing up online. And I think that at the end of the day, that's not going to do anything to improve social cohesion and social relations. And it's also undermining the capacity of governments or the media to then step up and say, we are the authoritative source on this issue. So I think trust and transparency will be really critical. Yeah, and those things are very hard to foster right now. And, you know, one thing I notice about the debate here in the U.S. is that you the politicians range from just downright anti-immigration, like you have like Representative Steve King in the Republican Party. Um, and on the other side, I think the mainstream opinion could probably be expressed by Hillary Clinton. She tweeted out just last week, you know, that she wasn't that much in favor of of uh, uh, open immigration policy, and she's very concerned about it. So I don't see the Democratic Party here either being like, yay, immigration. I see them um, a lot more kowtowing to some of these um, immigration fears in a way that perhaps they shouldn't. So the policy space that we're talking in is not very, it's not very wide. I mean, it, it sort of ranges from now, like, we don't want to let anyone in ever <laughs> to we'll only let a few people in. Um, so it's not, it, there's not a w more wide-ranging debate. And, and if anything, what's interesting to me is where you have people saying, I think people who are against immigration get treated unfairly. I think anyone who were to come out in favor of open borders would be treated very unfairly. And I, I, don't, I think they'd be laughed out of town in the U.S. right now. But I think that um, from the citizens' perspective, they actually think that what we've had, that the status quo over the past 20 years has been open borders. So yeah, when in fact it's not, right? It's very, I mean, it's fairly regulated who can come here and when and, and which particular people and what jobs they can have and, and whatnot. And the, you know, the types of visas are heavily regulated. Um, yeah. So I think look, people are very insecure at the moment on a number of different levels, whether culturally, socially, economically. People's perception of insecurity is incredibly heightened. There's a lot of social competition between groups, um, whether that's between kind of the working classes and the middle classes or between immigrants and whites or whatever. I think everybody, if, or even intergenerational competition, people feel that they are in a kind of zero-sum game society. And I think that's incredibly dangerous, and it's very difficult to get people to feel generous under the circumstances where they feel constantly under threat. So I think the only way forward, really, is, is for politicians to think about how they securitize. Um, and the big challenge for liberals, I think, is, you know, it's, it's much easier as a kind of authoritarian leader um, or, you know, a tough on law and order kind of person coming from probably the right to offer those kind of traditional tropes of security. Um, how do liberals find a way to offer security? I think that is the really big pertinent question. I mean, to me, one way they have to do it is to say, you know, we're going to let people in and we're going to benefit from the fact that they're all going to be producing more. But on the other hand, we have to have social programs that protect people from, um, you know, a, a wave of competition, particularly at the lower end. 
So if they were able, if the, if the government was able to sort of offset some of the costs, then perhaps they'd be able to reap more benefits on the other end. Well, I think certainly from the um, in the frame of economic insecurity, I think that that's something that could help. I think the much trickier space for politicians to wade into is these questions of kind of cultural insecurity. And I think, frankly, they have been so ill-equipped at engaging with them that they, do, they don't even have a language to speak about these kinds of things. So I think we're going to start to see a lot more conversations about citizenship and what that actually means. And I think really, you know, liberalism has become quite a neutral force in, in some ways. It sort of became synonymous with pluralism. And I think that's been quite disconcerting for citizens. And I think now that liberalism really is up against genuinely illiberal forces, it's very difficult to reassert a sense of self. So I think liberals really need to get on the front foot in thinking about, you know, what do we stand for? Um, what do we mean by liberalism? What are our values? Um, and that will need to feed into the conception of citizenship. And I think that's going to be something that's, that we will see a lot more conversations um, about over the coming decade. Now, do you think a lot of this sort of got expressed in the Brexit vote? You know, these, these sort of um, distrust of government, sort of distrust of immigration policy, and that sort of drove a lot of it, because clearly in Brexit there was a lot of conspiracy thinking taking place. Even during the vote, they said, you know, don't vote in pencil, they'll erase it, you have to vote in pen. I think uh, Brexit was a kind of perfect storm of, as I say, this incredibly important uh, feeling of control, um, that, that Brits had felt had been taken out of their hands. Um, so there's the kind of sovereignty question um, mixed with this very potent emotive immigration question. And I think it's important to remember that by the time of concern in British politics for some years, I mean, the number one thing that if people got out of bed and a poster came and talked to them, they would always say immigration was their number one concern. So it was really, you know, a very, it, it was a kind of a, a, a greenhouse for uh, political dysfunction. And obviously, we can look back now and say <laughs> there was only ever one course of um, action there. But I think it, it was a kind of steam valve as well, because people had felt for so long that their concerns about this this issue was were not being addressed. So um, I think absolutely <laughs> Brexit, you could not have created more favorable conditions for a disruptive shock result. Um, and it's absolutely shaken our political classes to their core. Um, interestingly, the conversation about immigration still has not happened. Um, we're some two and a half years after the vote, and we are yet to see what the government's new policy on immigration will be. But I can tell you from doing focus groups around the country, um, what is very interesting is that people feel that they do see the Brexit vote as a kind of demonstration of their political will. And in turn, they think that the issue of immigration is now settled. They think that this act of this big sort of howl <laughs> um, uh, at Westminster has really finally shaken of politicians and woken them up. So they're certainly expecting a new settlement on immigration. The government now is tasked with this very difficult challenge because, of course, our entire economic model has been built around 
quite dynamic labor market flows on immigration. So there are going to be some costs, but what we are seeing is that citizens are increasingly willing to trade economic security for things that they think will protect and sustain communities, traditional British values, and for a sense of control over immigration. Well, we are running out of time. Um, now, Sophia, do you have a um, website or a place that people can be in contact with you? So I'm on Twitter, uh, and my Twitter handle is at Soph Gaston, so S-O-P-H-G-A-S-T-O-N. So you can come uh, say hi to me on there. I've also got my email address and my Twitter bio rather bravely. Um, and <laughs> and the, web, uh, the website for Henry Jackson Society, who I've published this report with, um, if you look them up, the report is on there if you want to read it in full. And, of course, I've been tweeting out some of the uh, – uh, more interesting graphs and so on. So I think if you come to my Twitter, you can you can see some of the the best and the worst. <laughs> yeah. How was your reaction on Twitter? How has it been? Uh, how do people react to this kind of report? What's so interesting is. Um, Without having read the report, <laughs> um, and certainly I presume they, they could not have had time to do so given they responded the moment it was published, um, people saw these graphs of public opinion as validating their concerns. So these graphs were not presenting any evidence, for example, that their the government had been engaged in conspiracy, but they see these graphs representing a consensus position across the population, and they see that as validating their own beliefs. So what we're seeing is that actually just that feeling of being part of a consensus or the belief that you're part of a, a common view um, that uh, is suspicious and mistrustful of the government is actually a validating force in itself. And I think that tells us something about how these conspiracy theories are kind of germinating and, and um, disseminating online. Wow. Well, we look forward to uh, getting some feedback. We're going to have you linked up on our site as well. So uh, one click away, and they can read the report, or they can just tweet you and not read it. <laughs> um, I, I, get, I get that all the time too so. that's cool um, again the report's called Out of the Shadows and it's Conspiracy Thinking on Immigration and Sophia Gaston's our guest thank you for being here thanks so much for having me, great fun to find out more about our show guests or to listen to past shows from our archive please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com show's over for now was it as good for you as it was for me well good night this has been a production of something weird media i'll be back <laughs>